Hey, Risto here, George Mason University. Uh, this is a little bit of a different episode. Uh, this is one that was launched also with the Physical Activity Researcher podcast by Olitikkanen. Um, and they also, in that same stream, they launch a meaningful sport podcast. So uh, basically two for one, if you follow that podcast, they have a lot of good content on uh, research, on physical activity, on meaningful sport, on meaningful movement. Um, so lots of good content there. Um, this is a little bit of a different one because we talk about how pedagogy relates to physical activity research and uh, kind of gives a background of the research that I've done, my experiences in, in the field. So hopefully you'll enjoy and we will um, come back with a regular episode uh, next week. Welcome everyone. I'm very excited about the forthcoming episode as we are talking about physical education and I get to discuss with the fellow Science.com's podcaster. As our guest is the host of podcast called Playing with Research in Health and PE. Our guest has done his bachelor and master's in California State University in kinesiology with emphasis on sports psychology and has done his doctorate of education at Columbia University. Currently, he's working as an assistant professor at the George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, US. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Risto Martin. Welcome, Risto. Thanks, Oli. And, and thanks for pronouncing my name exactly like a good, good Finnish person that pronounces a Finnish name. So, um, I, I'm super happy to be here. Um, I've been listening to some of your episodes throughout, and we've had some great people in um, in exercise physiology, exercise science on on the podcast. So good job on the on your podcast. Yeah, thanks. Actually, pronouncing Finnish names when you are speaking English, it's it's not so easy to pronounce them even correctly for for a Finn. But um, If we start with your personal and professional background, could you tell how did you get to this point? Yeah, um, I talk to my students a lot about this actually and kind of try to explain to them that um, you don't have to have a linear pathway to get where you're going. And I certainly didn't. Um, I wrestled in college um, at Cal State Fullerton. I, you know, knew 100% sure when I got into college that I was going to be a, a physical education teacher and then went to observe some physical education classes and started my major and realized that I wanted to be in the classroom. And so I actually changed my major to health science and then got an opportunity to coach um, at the university level and got a, a master's degree, then figured the focus should be somewhere in sports. So I uh, focused on sports psychology, which I was really, really interested in. And kind of one thing led to another, and and I ended up uh, getting a doctorate degree in um, curriculum and teaching and physical education at at Teachers College at Columbia University. So um, I I was kind of always going back and forth, but I realized that I love being in the college classroom. I felt like that's where I could have a greater and stronger impact um, by teaching future teachers. Um, so I got into teaching at the elementary school level. I taught in uh, Central Harlem at a um, community school, teaching kindergarten to third grade uh, part time while I was getting my doctorate, and 
you know, as, as I've done for 13 years throughout my university experience, I always worked in restaurants to pay the bills and, um, but yeah, so kind of a circuitous route. I landed back at my alma mater in my, in my first, uh, tenure track position at Cal State Fullerton. Um, and so I spent three years there and then, uh, have been at three years at George Mason now and just loving it. Yeah, so quite quite interesting that way to this point. And you said that you were wrestling yeah, when you yeah. were younger. Yeah, yeah like yeah. Greco-Roman or? Um, American collegiate wrestling. So it's kind of a mix between uh, Greco-Roman and freestyle. Um, I did compete in freestyle and Greco-Roman during the off seasons, but I started wrestling in in high school, much to my mom's chagrin. She uh didn't really enjoy watching me go out there and get hurt, which right when I started wrestling, I was not very good. Um, but that kind of, I, I credit wrestling to be, you know, one of the major changes in my life. And a lot of the things that have happened to me, I can kind of trace back to, to that sport. And so I, I actually left high school, went back to Finland, did my military service and took that kind of, I guess people would call it a gap year. I, I don't know if I'd call it a gap year, but um, mm. I went back to Cal State Fullerton, walked on the wrestling team there and ended up coaching there for five years afterwards until they dropped the wrestling program in uh, 2011. Mm. So so you said that it affected your life a lot. I think it's quite interesting. It's it's quite central wrestling in many many colleges in US so it might be interesting to hear what what did you learn from from wrestling for your life well i think i think the hard work aspect for sure um you know i don't think i mean wrestlers wrestlers are like a different breed of human being you know i think everybody can get into wrestling but once you get into it 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 really does mold you if you can survive it um so it's a lot about you know hard work grit determination all of those um i guess cliche things that you hear but you know most of my friends are wrestlers you know i my my like closest friends in in life are people who i wrestled with um and you know i ended up taking time off after my senior year in college i actually came back to finland to wrestle in the Finnish national championships and, and, you know, thought that I could have one last push. And to be honest, like that, I mean, that was the last time I, I've competed when I think 2006 and people always ask, like, I, I do Brazilian jujitsu now and people are like, Oh, are you going to compete again? Or you should go to this tournament. And I feel like my competitive juices are all gone. Like I put everything out there. I, I had a great time while I was, competing but i have very little interest in competition and my my kind of outlook in how i choose to be physically active i love doing jujitsu i love going and doing combative sports but the the idea of competition like i i have zero interest or i have a negative interest in competing anymore which is I guess interesting in the fact that I competed for so long, but mm. yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very interesting that 
you but in in jiu-jitsu you anyway kind of you sparring or rolling basically every training so it's kind of competitive in in a way but not not an actual competition yeah and the and the gym that i mean not right now during covid but the gym that i train at i mean there are so many people that can you know beat me up real bad so there's no like lack of competition in the room i know that it's not like i'm nowhere near the top of the food chain there so when i go in that that's enough for my competition it's personal competition i don't need to like go through the the pressures of performing for other people but i find so much like intrinsic motivation in being able to compete which i mean I, you know like there are people that say like they play soccer and they're super competitive like i i love playing soccer as well but i don't think i get to a point where i'm super competitive out on the field but i'm like internally um i get into that mm, yeah i i can i can fully relate to to your comment that how do you how do you have good competition i've been doing mixed martial arts but i haven't been doing the grappling part probably mm -hmm. enough and and yeah always the jiu-jitsu guys it's <laughs> you you stay humble let's say it this way and if, what's funny about jiu-jitsu most of the time most people who i've met are so nice so welcoming they'll like beat you up and then just say hey man thank you so much i really appreciate that that was that was really fun and i'm like you know in other sports it would just be like such a different like i don't know if wrestling even is like that like wrestling if somebody comes into the room if there's like that culture in wrestling if somebody comes in the room that's an outsider you try to show as much as you can and i guess i'm speaking from like a competitive college D division one wrestling room like you would try to like make sure that they know that you're good whereas mm -hmm. grappling is in the places that I've been to has been really humble and really nice and really helpful. Yeah, I, I full, fully agree with you. And I, I think even if somebody has has the black belt and, and the others don't, there's probably someone who's bigger brown belt than even the black belt is losing mm -hmm. sometimes. So everybody, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really nice environment. And I, I fully agree with you but maybe maybe we move from wrestling to our our topic in in physical education and and you said before that you could maybe want to talk about that physical education have become more like physical activity would you like to elaborate on that yeah i think you know there in and I'm, i speak from the u.s point of view um the u.s has gone through in the you know 90s 2000s this huge research push in, you know, using physical education as a vehicle for public health. And they want to push moderate to vigorous physical activity. And, you know, this is demonstrated by different curriculum that have come out that, you know, were these huge, like federally funded grants that, you know, spark PE, things like that, that were focused on showing that if you follow this curriculum, you can guarantee that 50% of the time the students are in moderate to vigorous physical activity. So that kind of spun this idea of saying, you know, PE is this vehicle for public health. And if you want to stop obesity, you could do it through PE. If you want to, you know, increase 
the health of kids, you can do it through PE. So there was a big push for a while, and, and I would say arguably still, that we focus so much on increasing physical activity. And you'll see a lot of teachers out there too when they talk about changing curriculum or you know, bring in different things in social-emotional learning or you know social justice or any other content into PE. A lot of people always say, they're like, well, I need to get my kids active. This is the only time that they are active. And it's a it's a hard balance to strike because they are partially they are true. Like you need to get your students physically active because a lot of students don't have another space in their life to be physically active. But with PE and the limitations of PE, meaning we only have it a couple of days a week all across mm-hmm. the world. There's very few places that have five days a week PE, we will never get to the minute requirement or the minute recommendations from in America, shape America, or, you know, the WHO or the CDC or whoever is making these minute suggestions, wherever you are in the world, PE will never make those physical activity requirements um, just in general, because we just don't have enough time. So then the balance is, do we, educate do we provide you know meaningful experiences in pe instead of just focusing on well we just got to get them moving as soon as they walk in the classroom Hmm. yeah that's a good good point how how do you see what is actually the education in physical education like it's not just doing pa but what should we educate people to do well it's about teaching about and in and through movement. So if you're looking at it, yeah, you can teach through movement, how your body moves, how you react to different situations, um, teaching skills, right? Teaching tumbling, teaching climbing, teaching throwing, catching. And, you know, in the US, Canada, a few other places, there's been this big push for physical literacy. And I think depending on what definition of physical literacy you would say, I would agree with it and I would disagree with other parts that, you know, there's a notion of that a physically literate individual is, you know, you'll get to that when you graduate high school versus, you know, everybody has a certain degree of physical literacy and you keep on, um, you know, building that up. And I saw this a demonstration at a conference, and I, I can't remember who demonstrated this, but it's this idea of having, like, building up Lego blocks. Like, if you have two Lego blocks and you give two Lego blocks to a kid, and mm-hmm. that's like jumping and hopping, and those are the two Lego blocks, he he or she is not going to have a lot of fun, right? But if you add like fifteen Lego blocks, now they can build some things, but it's not that exciting still but if you give them the whole entire pack of legos unlimited amount of legos they can throw catch jump you know they can build different experiences and so i I think that's maybe a better visual than over a podcast but the idea is that if you build a lot of learning blocks and a lot of things to do Mm -hmm. you know that's the way that you actually have this really enjoyable experience. 
Mm. And and how big part of this is kind of motor competence, fitness that you you know and you're able to do these things. Uh, what do you what do you mean by that? Like like some people think that when you just teach kids with like enough motor skills that they can do many things they can perform different kind of things and and mm-hmm. use these these skills how how important in pe you see that they they just learn enough motor skills well i think that's part of the puzzle i think that's um part of learning motor skills is really important so we need to teach those but also we need to teach those skills that will be relevant to those students in their day-to-day lives. And we need to teach a, a variety of motor skills. And it can't be based on what the teacher likes. So for me, if I was able to only teach the things that I like, my classes would be doing a lot of wrestling and combative sports and soccer and basketball, and I would skip dance altogether. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't teach dance because I'm not good at dance and I feel uncomfortable teaching dance, but I still teach it because I know that certain students are going to enjoy it. And that's where this like student-centered pedagogy comes in. And there's a lot of good work on student-centered pedagogies in, in the physical education research um, that, ha- that has come out in the last 10, 15 years. And it's focused on listening to students over time, talking to students, reacting to students, and, you know, asking them, negotiating the curriculum with them to figure out what do they want to do? What do they want to learn? You know, I, I worked with a first year student in, in a um, inner city neighborhood in Los Angeles. And the school, you know, was a, a low income school. He had a really hard time in his first year getting to, you know, getting comfortable with teaching and he called me and he's like, hey, you know, we learned all these schools. He was in a, an affluent school during the student teaching experience. And he learned all these games and skills. And he was really struggling teaching in this inner city school. And I said, well, what are you teaching? He's like, well, I'm going through this ultimate Frisbee unit, which is, you know, is totally fine to do in a middle school. And it was the right content. It was in the California content standards that he was going to teach from. But I asked him, I said, do you ever see your kids playing ultimate Frisbee? Like, do they throw Frisbees around? He's like, no. I'm like, do you think that's meaningful for them? Do you think that in high school, they are going to go out and play Frisbee? Because it's not anywhere near, like, nobody does that in their community. Does it bring them... Mm -hmm value or social capital to be good as a frisbee player he's like no i'm like well then we need to also talk to them and figure out what they want to do so he did a questionnaire for students what they wanted to do and a lot of the students wanted to try volleyball they've never played volleyball and they have all these volleyball courts outside and so he switched his unit to be more student-centered that way and i think that's the tough part about being a PE teacher because you also need to teach things that you think that they don't know but they might like. Like I can't just not teach certain things because the kids don't like it. If we did that, then we probably wouldn't 
get very far. So it needs to strike a balance of teaching activities, building experiences that they have positive learning experiences throughout their childhood in the hopes that they don't hate physical activity when they get out of school or they don't, you know, target physical activity and go, that's something that I hate because that's not going to be good for their lifetime, lifetime learning and lifetime physical activity. Mm, yeah. So, so you mentioned meaningful experiences, enjoyment and fun. And we actually had in, in another episode, we had, we had Dr. Craig Dreyer and he was saying that PE does not need to be fun, that mathematics in school is not fun, that, that, that maybe we put too much emphasis that it would be fun. What's your, your take on this maybe a little bit controversial statement from Craig? Well, I think, I think where PE is situated is a marginalized subject. Math is not a marginalized subject. Math is something that you have to do. There's no like, there's no getting out of math until you are like 16 or 18 in school. Um, you know, I think fun, this is um, one of the professors at George Mason, Tony DiGregorio used to say that, you know, fun is a vehicle of learning. And boring math, and math has their own issues. And I, and I love that math is the one that is always brought up because I bring up math. And, you know, you look at math and look at how many people hate math. I hate math. Like, I do not like it. I did not do well. Like, during my, you know, teenage years, when I was going through these advanced math classes that I wanted to drop, like, I would literally throw my book across my, across my room at my house. And my mom's like, you need to calm down. And like, mm -hmm. I really, really like, dislike it. I don't get it. But I wonder if I had teachers who made math fun, made math meaningful, made it resonate with my life and made it connect more than just, you know, F equals X plus three to the third power. Solve this. What does that mean? What, what's the point of that? And I think we get stuck as PE teachers, as teacher educators, and sometimes forgetting to explain the why. Why is this important? And if you look at, you know, theory, plan, behavior, or something like that, like you got to have some sort of enjoyment or some sort of positive attitude toward what you're doing, not just to get through math. And for all the people who love PE and for all the people who love math, there are a lot of people who, who hate those subjects. And, and I think that's where you kind of get to it where, you know, you, you have to find that balance of making it enjoyable, because if you look at the physical activities that you like to do, I'm sure that if you, if you do martial arts, it's something that you enjoy at some level, you have a passion for, you have the ability and the means to get there and you have some sort of, you know, social support or pressure or whatever to get you to that door to go into that training session. Mm. It, the things that you don't like, we're not even talking about because you don't, you don't enjoy doing them. Like I don't really enjoy dancing. So when I am thinking about what type of physical activity do I want to do? 
I'm not going to go to a Zumba class, but I'm not, it's not even on my mind because it doesn't, you know, I don't have an, a positive attitude towards it. And for math, like I get by with what I get by. It's probably some, you know, base level of understanding that I have because I went to math classes for 13, 14 years. So I have a basic level of understanding, but I think fun, enjoyment, I mean, that's a part of life. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think you already mentioned quite many things of this, that what are meaningful experiences, but maybe you can say them together that how do you see, where does the meaningful experience come from? What are the constituents? So, and I know uh, Nora has a podcast and blog and all the stuff on meaningful PE and um, you know, Tim Fletcher, if, if you haven't, I think Tim Fletcher has been on there. Uh, I think those, those people know a lot more about meaningful PE. I've had Tim and Stephanie Benny on my podcast. Um, mm -hmm. so I won't speak to this as any sort of expert, but, you know, I look at meaningful PE as something that, you know, explains the why, right? Explains why we are teaching what we're teaching. Um, it's something that students have some control over, you know, connecting with that activity or guiding that activity to where they want to go. And I think, you know, not necessarily in that space of meaningful PE, if we like have to categorize these, but I find informal sport really, really interesting. And Justin O'Connor down at Monash University has done a lot of work on this. He's come on our podcast as well. And when I talk to him, and I don't, I haven't done any research in this area, but I just love talking to him and hearing his opinions about this idea of having these informal sport places. Not, I have to go into practice every Tuesday, Thursday, or I don't play Saturday. It's the things that we do as adults. For me, it's jujitsu. Mm -hmm. It's informal for me. Because if my wife says that we're going to go do something else on Saturday morning, or we're going to do a hike, I'm not going to go to jiu-jitsu practice. But if I don't have anything going on Tuesday night, I can go there. And that's the same thing for informal, you know, bicycle groups or informal running groups. And if you think about how adults, not every adult, but how most adults participate in physical activity, It's through this informal structure. It's walking. It's hiking. It's, oh, it's Saturday. It's a really nice day. I'm going to take my bike out and go for a bike ride. Or, hey, a bunch of my friends called me up and said, we're going to get together and play a neighborhood pickup basketball game. And so I think that there's so much. And I think it overlaps with meaningful PE or meaningful physical activity. It's because you have a choice in doing it. I think those are the things that we kind of forget and we could 100% bring back into PE. And one of my colleagues, he's an elementary school teacher, Nate Babcock um, in California. He runs an amazing elementary school program and he has these learning, I think he calls them learning communities. And when they start this unit, He explains that here are the rules. 
you can make any game you want. You can play a game you already know, so maybe it's basketball, or maybe it's creating another game. But once you pick that area, you have to stay in that area and for you know the next two lessons or three lessons. And you have to make the rules, you have to follow the rules. Um, if somebody you know is in conflict or wants to change the game in the middle, they need to work that out. And they need to figure out how to do that themselves. And so I think that there's so much that that can be taken from informal sports to meaningful PE. And if it's done right, it can be put into um, into a really good PE program. Yeah, I, I really like what you were saying. It, it, it makes all the sense with informal sports. And I was doing earlier like team sports. I was playing Finnish baseball and then moved to individual sport, mainly in, in shape of martial arts and some trail running. And, and in team sports, you need to go training every day because it's kind of uh, also the team effect in a way. And then when I moved to individual sport, I didn't need to go every day. I pretty much every day went. But mentally, it was a big difference that I had the I had the choice, even though 99% of the time I cho- choose to go uh, every day. But I think it was it was important. So I, I really like what you what you said. And and do you see this as an important part of of teaching like lifelong movers or lifelong participation well i think that that's exactly when you talk about what should we be teaching in pe is all of us talk about making lifetime movers and i think that's one of the issues that pe has is we don't actually have a definition of physical education because some countries some individuals will say what's development of physical literacy and other people like you know, raise up their hands and say, you know, say, stop talking about physical literacy. That's not what PE is about. And other people will say that it's, you know, moderate to vigorous physical activity and so on and so forth. But I think where we all kind of can come into an agreement as much as a bunch of PE teachers can agree on something, it's about making, you know, providing opportunities or developing lifetime movers, people who enjoy physical activity. But then when we teach, We're not necessarily looking at providing that those tools for them to make their own decisions, to develop their own programs, to really like figure out meaning in what they do and having choice. And one of the one of the struggles I have is in PE, in a rigid PE format. So let's say you go all the way through your last year in high school in PE, up until like May of that year your high school senior year, you're forced to do something you don't like to do. So you're telling a 17-year-old in May that you have to play flag football or you have to do this strength and conditioning thing or you have to do this other thing because that's a in a top-down teacher-directed program. Then they enter university in August and they're still you know, 17 or 18. So that's only a few months away. And now they walk onto a university campus and they have a rock climbing wall. They have Zumba classes, have yoga classes. They have intramural leagues. They can play all of these things. And that choice suddenly is there. And so I think that, you know, what we could do is 
break out this kind of choice-based curriculum. And I know that there, there are people that do this. Um, you know, they provide different choices and students get to choose what they want to do and develop. And I think when it all comes down to it, it's how do we teach lifetime physical activity? Because for all those people who say that, you know, PE isn't about physical activity, you know, they want to talk about some sort of different lens to it, right? PE is about making lifetime physical activity movers. And that's, that's what I think. And so we need to do a better job in explaining why, trying to get to students because they're going through a tough time, like figuring out how to move in front of your peers when you're 12 to 18 years old, when you're gaining that confidence in who you are, what your body feels like, looks like when it moves, and now you have to do it in front of other people. It's a really challenging time. And it's not, I mean, it's not an easy job. I think working with elite athletes or college athletes and strength and conditioning is very different because all of those students want to be there. They're like, mm. the, you know, they're, they're the paragon of health. Like they're the best, like, athletes that they can be and you're trying to just like tune them up to be even better whereas you know being a PE teacher you you have students who just are going through a lot of tough times in their life and they don't want to be physically active they don't want to move because they have bigger bigger things to do so mm. i think as a PE teacher it's so much you know so important to create this caring environment and to you know provide a supportive environment for them. Mm. So it's it's a challenging task for PE teachers. So what should the educators be studying? Is it exercise physiology, psychology? How, how can they get to this task? What are the best things to study for them? Well, I think I think that depends on who you ask. If you ask me, I don't think we need to study more exercise physiology or psychology courses. I think, you know, in a country like where you're at, if you become a PE teacher in Finland, you start taking pedagogy courses in your first year in in college. You end up with a master's degree. You have five years where you're taking field experience, pedagogy courses, all the stuff. But the, I think the U.S. system has some really great things, but we spend so much time in, you know, we have two years in general education. And then we have two years in your specialization, which a lot of that is one year in kinesiology, where we are taking anatomy, physiology, exercise psychology, exercise physiology, you know, motor development, motor learning, um, you know, exercise and fitness health promotion. And when you really think about it, we end up with like three to four really solid pedagogy courses and a bunch of activity courses, depending on what the university has done. They are either individual activity courses or what we do in Mason, we combine them into field and invasion games, net and target games, um, you know, fitness and strength and conditioning stuff that we are actually teaching pedagogy in. But I think that's that's the issue is we expect so much from our teachers, but we only gave them three to seven very specific PE classes 
and we expect them to do, you know, what a, you know, career's worth of a person who's writing those, those standards. So I, I don't think that we should go in the way of pushing more exercise physiology or exercise science. I think we need to teach more physical activity, like, um, pedagogy courses. Mm. Yeah, makes makes sense. And if we move to fitness testing of students, how how do you see the current state and issues in with fitness testing in PE? When I think, and again, I think if we talk about fitness testing in PE in the U.S., we have some serious issue. We talk about fitness testing in other countries, we're like you do high stakes fitness testing in PE in the U.S. Why? And they're so like confused why we put so much pressure on it. And I think, you know, what do we do with it? I think, honestly, what California did was, you know, was really good. They basically this year, Gavin Newsom said, we're going to put a hold on it until 2022, until we can figure out how to fix this. And I think that's a, that's a smart move. It's a, it's a pump the brakes. Let's figure it out. It's not. We're going to trash it all together. And, you know, some of the issues, right, that we have with fitness testing in the way that it's done. And so for those of you that, you know, haven't gone through this or are in different countries, you know, in the U.S. in fitness testing, let's say you live in California. In grades five, seven, and nine, you have to take the fitness test, uh, the fitness gram battery. So your shuttle run, beep test, pacer test, push-ups, sit-ups. Uh, sit and reach um, and all these like different different tests and you have to go through this full battery twice a year once in the beginning once in the spring and they upload all this information onto the state website through fitnessgram and this information not not individualized but school level wise is public so you can go in and look at different schools or different um you know, different areas or, you know, districts and look at the fitness test that that school did. And a lot of times this is then said to be the value of your PE program. Oh, we increased our PACER test by 15% this year. Good job, PE teacher. Whereas you're still looking at two days a week at 40 minutes that they're coming into PE. So what control does that PE teacher actually have? on this. You know, so for some students it is an amazingly like degrading experience putting kids on put, you know, display. You turn them away from lifetime physical activity. You know, you have and one of the issues that California also brought up is that you have non-gender conforming youth not fitting in. There are different levels for girls to quote pass or boys to pass. But then if you don't conform to either gender, then how do you grade that student? You know, you have research on attitudes of teachers toward fitness testing. So, you know, if you have a negative attitude towards fitness testing, your students will have a more negative attitude towards fitness testing because you don't value it. And, you know, there's a lot of research. Michael Gard has done um, critical papers on this. Um We've had uh, different colleagues at um, Towson University, um, you know, Hofstra University, 
Adelphi talk about, you know, the the ethics of this. Like so, like there is a neoliberal tilt to Fitness Gram. So that company has or that company sells the software. So you can't just run a pacer test and then say that you're going to use a pacer test and use that uh, score and just put it on a piece of paper and give it to the student. It's, it has to go into the software. Well, the software costs money. So now every if every single school in California that has uh, 40 to 50 million people in that in that state, now all of those people that go to school in fifth, seventh, and ninth grades, which is all elementary schools, all middle schools, and all high schools, because that's where five, seven, and nine drop in, all of those people have to buy that software. So now you're putting that score in, you're buying that you know computer software, you have to purchase that computer software, and then now you're reporting it. So you know you look at even like doing a pull-up. Like if you can't do a pull-up in sixth grade, arguably, should you be able to? Sure. But there are students that just can't. So why are we going to throw them in front of 30 students watching and saying, hey, Ole, go up there, do a pull-up. And you're like, I can't do a pull-up. Well, you have to go up there and try. Like that's that's so embarrassing. You know, and that's that's how my sixth grade was. That was my first year in, in the U.S. And mm-hmm. I vividly remember going up and the teacher saying, you have to go up there and show me a pull-up. And all I did was I played soccer 24-7. So I, I don't have any upper body strength because that's not what I was training at that point. I was good at running, but I was embarrassed as a, as a new kid in school. Like, I don't know. It's, those are things that, I should not remember out of my PE class in sixth grade. Like that's that that instance was maybe two minutes long, but I'm 38 years old and I remember what happened to me in sixth grade PE. So there has to be something wrong there. There has to be something that we could do in some better way. Yeah, I I agree with you. So. Do you see any role for fitness testing? Is there a way to do it correctly or should we just leave it out? You know, I think we can do it correctly. Um, I don't think it needs to be as high stakes. So um, Sharon Phillips, Kevin Mercy, and I wrote this practitioner piece in Strategies a couple of years ago. And, you know, we, we list out four things that we should have. And so one is it should be a part of a year-long curriculum. So it shouldn't be just test in the fall and test in the spring. It should be about, hey, this is how you get stronger. You can't do a push-up. Well, let's just stay in a plank and touch your shoulders and start building up that strength and start giving them things that they can do outside of their house, that they can be physically active on the weekends and still build those strength and conditioning aspects Number two is using criterion reference, not norm reference tests. So fitness gram is a criterion reference. So basically, you know, crash course and and the idea that, you know, all of your students in that class can get to a passing score. Whereas the president's fitness challenge that I went through when I was a kid was only the top 10% in that class are able to get a passing score or a top 
presidential medal score. Um, number four or number three is, you know, helping students understand the meaning of fitness testing. Right. And number four is you have to make it fun. And that's where I go back to this fun is that vehicle for learning. And we feel that if you do those four things, you can actually make this meaningful and you can make it work. And it doesn't have to be a high stakes thing. And there are different ways to, you know, develop that, you know, cardiorespiratory endurance or muscular strength and endurance. Um, but also it needs to be meaningful for that student. They have to understand why they're doing it and they have to understand how to improve it. And they have to understand why they're even doing it. And, you know, there's a lot of people and we, we talk about this in our, in our classes and a lot of our students, when I give them these critical views, they go, well, we should get rid of fitness testing. And like we informally fitness test ourselves all the time. I'm sure that when you go on a trail run, you don't have to, you know, look at your time some days to know that you weren't at your best. Because you've practiced trail running for so long, you know where you feel like something's off. Other times, you'll try to do a personal best and see if you can run that 5K, 10K, whatever that hike is. You'll look at your time and go, oh, that was really good. That was the best I've ever done. That's a sort of fitness testing. But if we can explain fitness testing in that way, or you know, kids that are really into soccer and they, they practice juggling. You know, I, I remember doing this when I was a kid. Like I would try to get to a better number of keeping up the soccer ball before it hits the ground in any possible way. And mm. I was so excited when I hit 51 instead of 49. And I kept on trying and trying and trying. So I was motivated. That's not a fitness test. That's a skill test. But that came from internal motivation. That was not a teacher or a parent or an adult watching me and saying, you have to get to 51 today. So those the, we always have those individual tests. And I think a lot of you know people who are listening, you could think to yourself of what are the things that you test yourself with? We do that all the time. It's just teaching that skill. Well, we don't need to broadcast it to the rest of the world. I think it's important to see trends, right? So like, are we, you know, are we having students who are doing less and less and less pushups? Well, okay, if we are, that's a serious issue because when you get down to it, you have to have things that increase your bone density up until your late teenage years, or you're going to have more brittle bones in the future. So there has to be some sort of balance there. And they can be done through games and activities and just playing instead of, okay, line up. When you hear the music start, that means you have to go. And every time you hit a beep, it's going to get progressively faster and faster and faster. That might not be the most enjoyable thing. Yeah, I, I think really good points. And did I understood right that you have a podcast episode made of these these four suggestions that you, you mentioned? So I don't have a podcast episode of those. Uh, we have a paper and um, you can find that paper through the research gate to, to read for free. Um, 
But I did have uh, Tara Blackshear. She's at Towson University, and she did a research paper on using the fitness test or fitness gram in teacher education programs. And she talks, she cites a lot of good work there. So that that podcast is out um, in I think early November 2020. Um, so you can listen to that as well. Um, and she she cites some some of the good work in there as well. And I know some of my colleagues are doing you know, very recent work that is just, you know, not out yet, but it's, it's on the way that is going to, it's going to be really interesting. All right. Yeah, that's good. I, I think many of the listeners are probably interested about, about the fitness testing and how could it be done correctly in PE. And if we then move to doing research with the school age people and maybe the difficulty in, in collecting data in there. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was it's it's one of my struggles as a as a researcher, and you know, I I listen to and I I, I read papers from people who are who've done really great projects in in schools, and I have not had the same experience. I've had really great qualitative data. I've had really great meaningful you know uh, programs that we've run in our after school program. Um, we stayed a full year in each school and we've had really great results in qualitative data, but my ability to collect data over uh, a long period in free living environments, not, I can get the data when they're there. I can give them a pedometer accelerometer and then say, before you leave and, you know, check that back in with me. But my whole goal has been to figure out what are the students doing? Am I am I actually having an effect in their in their out of school time? Am I having an effect during their recess time? And there hasn't been a ton of work in following students for like a month and having them have their you know accelerometer on for a month to see are they physically active in and out of school and during weekends during times when we assume that because they have all this free time that they're being physically active. And, you know, my dissertation was trying to track students for, you know, I think, I think we did five weeks and I lost so many accelerometers because I'm, I'm working with students in, you know, affluent schools and I'm working with students in low income schools in sixth, seventh and eighth grades. And, I would ask the students, I'm like, hey, where's your where's your accelerometer today? Oh, I think I left it on my counter. I'm like, when did you leave it on your counter? They're like, uh Monday. I'm like, it's Friday. They're like, yeah, I just I just forgot. And you know, I had the same thing come through in in the reach after school program. You know, I probably lost 20% of the accelerometers. And we've had the same in in the PEP grants that we've done in which are used to be in these federally funded um, physical education grants where you would sit down and, you know, give every student in a PE class an accelerometer or a pedometer to wear and you sign them out and you know which number they have. And then the students get up to do their physical activity and you see 10 accelerometers on the ground where the students should, should have them on. And so I think that we have so much or I let, let me speak for myself because maybe people are doing this totally differently, but 
you know, I have so much loss of equipment. I have so much missing data. And when you look at it, my activities that we do in the after school program, we had a student centered curriculum. We had the students negotiate what they want to do. We had, you know, students uh, chime in on how they want to be physically active. We had them do reflections, all the stuff. But then I get caught up in the same thing of still doing a top down fitness test because what other quantitative data can I get to show that I am being successful in the after school program? So I'm happy to speak, speak more about that, but I just feel like it's been a struggle and I don't know how, you know, we can get all students represented in these, in these ways and really figure out, are they physically active? Because we can say that they can be physically active during PE time because that's prescribed, Mm -hmm. but can we follow students in and out of school to see if they're physically active? Because you can get that information. We got that information in interviews. We would ask students who in our after-school program, they were not very engaged and not physically active. And when we sat down with them at the end of the year and throughout asking them through journals throughout the year, they would say, oh, I don't like being physically active in front of my, my, my friends or in front of boys. Like, well, what do you do? Like, well, as soon as I get out of here, I go play with my cousins at the park and we play soccer. I'm just sitting there going, we run a soccer program, but you're not physically active here. They're like, no, because I don't feel comfortable because people judge me. But then they're physically active out of school. But that information is really relevant. I can write that up in a qualitative uh, article and talk about how students are physically active outside of school. But there's no second point of data. It's just a a one-on-one interview, which I trust because I've, you know, hung out with this sixth grader for, for an entire school year. So I doubt that she would lie to me at this point, but it's very hard for me to get that data because they forget to wear their physical, their accelerometers. They just, you know, in order to have really accurate data, it's gotta be an actigraph. So it's on their waist. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to wear that on your waist. And then the argument would be, well, they have a wrist-worn accelerometer now from Actigraph. Well, yeah, but what am I going to do with the $300 Actigraph accelerometers that I have? Are they? Are, are we just going to throw them away? You know, then we have to get new stuff. So I think there, there's a lot of issues, and I would argue that we don't actually know how active physical or how active students are, especially at the upper elementary school and middle school level. Mm, yeah, I, I can see see your pain, uh, difficulty and expensive devices getting lost and, and missing data. Do you see what would be the ideal device that you think with 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 you could collect good data set what what are the problems with you 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 mentioned that waste worn it's difficult but how how should the device be that it would work so i know that there are people doing this i've, I've researched this a little bit 
and I'll, I'll give this out because I've given up on, on the idea of writing a grant and doing this myself. But if you want to track students at the upper elementary middle school level, you, you do it through accelerometers and shoes, especially in America where kids wear shoes inside and outside normally. It wouldn't work in Finland because the kids would take off their shoes when they walk into your house. But if you want to measure how students are physically active, insert the thing in their shoes. And, but then that grant would be buying shoes for 50, 100, 200, however many students you're going to have in your study. But if you mm -hmm. figure out how to develop that, and there are, very, there are a couple startup companies that do this. Um, that they either have it on the very bottom of the shoe or they have it that it uh, you lace it up into your laces. Um, you know, I think those are are the ways that you can do it because they won't even think about it. And if you go into a low income community and give, you know, kids whose parents may not have them have them funds to buy them brand new Nikes. Imagine if you give a kid a pair of Nikes and say, hey, here's here's a pair of Nikes. I want you to, you know, wear these so we can figure out how physically active you are. And then you get to keep them afterwards. Kids would probably wear that for a week everywhere they go. Maybe for two weeks or three weeks or a month. And yeah, you'd have some trail off. But if you get the right size shoe on a kid who doesn't have cool shoes and all of a sudden you give them to them. I think that would be that would be the ideal way to do it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing, and it it makes sense wearing something on your waist. This is always challenging. Something usually quite big devices on the wrist. It's also, and you don't get that good data. But yeah, in in the shoe, you would get a good good data, which which is which is a good indication of physical activity. Although you should probably need to charge those shoes on a weekly or or I don't know how how often, but anyway, sometimes need to charge to get get for example full month of of data. So if anyone is listening, there's a there's a good good idea, and yeah. and basically it could be done on. You just need the acceleration data, so yeah. any any accelerometer could work if it just fits in the shoe. Yeah, and we had. The the one that I used for my for the Reach project was a band that had um, I think it was like a three month battery. So you know, unfortunately, the the company's out of business. But you know, like there are companies that have longer and longer. If if it doesn't have a display, if it doesn't have like all of the stuff. It can it doesn't do much more than just gather data, gather data, and sync automatically. I think that there are um, there are you know bands that can do that without having to charge as much. But you know that is that is one of the issues too. Is once you take that off your wrist or off your waist or however, then you then you add that complication of are they ever going to put it on once it's charged. And I think, have you heard of uh, Whoop? The mm, Whoop, Whoop Band, W-H-O-O-P? I think I have heard. I, I don't remember how it is. Yeah, so they have an external battery. So you charge the battery, 
you never take off your band and you just clip the battery onto your band for like 20, 30 minutes. And then it just kind of charges on your body. And then you just take the battery off. So they never, you know, you, you end up never taking the band off, which is great for whoop because I'm sure they're collecting some sort of extra information on me, but I love it. Like I, you know, once you get comfortable with wearing it consistently, you know, I don't, I don't know if that would work for, you know, middle schoolers or elementary school students, but I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of researchers that are doing research on physical activity and exercise science and all these different things. And even, you know, even PE researchers, they're doing research on pre-service teachers. They're doing it on college students because I can just go up to a college student and get their, you know, permission slip. I can just have them sign it right there. They don't need to go take it to their parent. I don't need to go through an ethics board that says, click here if you're working with minors. So I think that that's, and that's what we showed a lot of on our, we did a 21 year review of research on teaching and PE. And we reviewed uh, over a thousand articles over this 21 year span. And the trend is towards um, questionnaire data and using adults, pre-service teachers, in-service teachers, instead of students instead of qualitative, long format interviews and continued engagement of staying in that community for a year to learn what it's really like in physical education. Because it's harder to get through ethics. It's a lot more work. And it's a, I mean, getting a parent permission slip in a community that doesn't have a lot of parent involvement is really hard. So it's harder to go into communities that have less parent involvement. And that's why we know less about what goes on in low-income communities versus communities adjacent to research-intensive universities in the U.S. Because that's where money's coming in. That's where researchers are. And they're not going to go into inner cities to go in and collect data on schools that it's going to be much harder in, they're going to go to places that it's easier. And I think I think that government grants and, and universities are changing this for sure. They're saying, mm-hmm. if you apply for this grant, it has to be in a, you know, low income, or I don't remember what they, what they call opportunity zones. So they have to be these places that have up and coming businesses or a gentrifying neighborhood or something like that to force researchers to go in and do the research where it needs to be done. Mm, yeah. And it, it, it is often that when you try to collect data in real world environments, even really small obstacles actually are big obstacles. Like it needs to be really smooth, even just simple thing of charging maybe once a week might be it might be too much so I, I think it really need to be thought through and try to develop it really far and try to get all the small things away from collecting good data in in real life environments yeah and once you start that ball is rolling it's rolling downhill and it's going fast and you can't stop it like 
you know, you, you take a baseline data for accelerometers and then you go in and that baseline data didn't, you know, monitor correctly because students didn't wear it over the weekend or they threw your accelerometer in the laundry and now it doesn't work anymore. Like those are, those are things that then, okay, now you started with 60 students. Now you have only 40 students and then you have time one period and 10 of those students, you know, didn't, didn't wear it. Now you're down to 30 and then you have to do a post test or a second time. So you can quickly see how even a really well-designed study, you know, ends up with half of the participants. And then you say, well, you know, you go to peer review and they say, well, you didn't have a lot of people in the study. Like, well, yeah, we started with a lot, but I can't, you only have so much control. I can't force kids to wear it. Mm -hmm. When they say, do I have to wear this? What's your response as an ethical researcher? No, you don't have to do anything. I'm asking you to. This will help because it's going to help other people understand how physically active kids are in your neighborhood. And the kid looks at you and says, but I don't have to wear this. That's what I heard, right? I'm like, no. And they just take off the accelerometer. And I've had that happen to me. And I'm like, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for participating. If you want to do the interview later on. So I got, I got tons of data on why kids don't want to wear accelerometers or what they didn't like about it. But that's yeah. not very interesting data. You know? In, in a way, it's interesting to develop a better one. But mm -hmm. yeah, you're looking for something else in the data set. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if we move to to podcasting and you have had a couple of years at least the podcast how how and why did you got into podcasting um i wanted to do something that you know I, i got into podcasting i listened to a ton of podcasts and i wanted to get to a point where um so doing something for my students right so my students have um limited time in their days. They have all these other classes. I want them to read research. So if I give them a 28 page research article that's read or that's written to be read by people who have PhDs, they're not going to understand all of it, right? They're not going to understand the, you know, theory behind it or the methods because they haven't had a theory or a research methods class, but still the findings are really important. So my goal was to start the podcast and to make 20 to 25 minute episodes and have these 20 to 25 minute episodes where the author explains their paper in that short period of time. So even if my students didn't do any reading on their way to campus, they can put it in their car or their, you know, headphones when they're taking the, you know, metro over to uh to campus that they can listen to and understand enough about that research to then have an intelligent conversation going forward. And I kept the episodes to 20 to 25 minutes for probably the first year. And then I realized it was too hard and I just enjoyed talking about the research. So they've, they've gotten longer. Um, maybe I'm too long winded, but um, it was for that. So it was one for my students to bridge that gap. 
Two, for practitioners who can't afford to read a research article that gets published behind a paywall that costs $40 for somebody to buy. And three, for other scholars. I know when I was at Cal State Fullerton teaching a bunch of classes, doing research, I had a hard time keeping up with, with research. And for me to be able to provide, you know, four, we do a, a podcast episode every Tuesday, launches at 7 a.m. Eastern. So um, for researchers out there, for early career scholars in their downtime, when they're folding laundry or when they're going for a run or driving to and from work, that they can catch up on one more research article every single um, every single month or every single week, they get one more article, you know, that's beneficial to them, let alone the early career scholars that we try to get on who are, you know, in their first jobs, they need a, a little bigger platform to be able to um, communicate their work with. I think it's just a, a win, win, win all around. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, I think it's podcast is it's just such time efficient for the listener and also creation that if we would for example try to write a blog post or, or an article of these things that we have discussed now it would take so much more time mm -hmm. and then people would need to read so it would take away for their time but when it's in audio format so i, I think it's a it's a really good good format and i think researchers should use it more how how has the feedback been from the from the students have, have they been listening it a lot um so when we when we launched the podcasts uh they you know i started putting them into my classes and they they really enjoyed them and i don't know if they enjoy every single one of them i think i think all of them have been awesome but i don't know if that goes through to all of my students, but I know that they have given me feedback that the podcasts are way more fun than having to sit down and read a 28-page research paper. Um, so in the weeks that I don't assign a podcast, I put a, uh, a podcast on, um, on our learning management system. We use Blackboard. I put a podcast that's related to that issue because I know that out of 30 students in my class, maybe three are really, really interested in doing the extra work. And I know that I can kind of cultivate a research understanding with, with those students. So I think it's been well received. Uh, we've had a huge bump this year. Um, I think partially because people are telling people are telling people. Um, and I think that bump is because professors are putting them in their classes. And they're having them do required listening or supplemental stuff. And so now I'm kind of seeking out more scholars that do things that help other scholars. So like I had Tristan Wallhead, who's an expert on this curriculum model called sport education model. I said, hey, can you just do these solo explanations of this curriculum that you've been studying for 15 years? And so then I can put those on and they end up having you know, shorter podcasts throughout. And, you know, we've increased kind of the styles that we do. We do an article club, um, which I don't know if you do on this podcast, but I, I found that really engaging. I have, you know, five scholars 
who I know personally, um, and we just go off and off with one person picks up article, everybody reads it, no script, no lead up questions, just we get on and, and talk about it. And we post the article on Twitter. So people who want to go in and, you know, read the article, then they can listen to other people's kind of conversation about it. Um, I've loved that format. Um, in addition to breaking down these specific, uh, research articles as well. Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. We, we don't do at least yet article club. So how do you do it in practice? How many you are and, and do you do it live or now probably online and, and is somebody leading the talk or could you tell about the practicalities? Yeah. And I know that because I tried to find kind of hashtags on Twitter. So I know that other people do this in different fields. Like there's a, you know, archeology span article club and, you know, other things, but basically we send out an article with a couple weeks heads up. We, we schedule a time through doodle to get everybody on the same page. We lock it in. And then I send a, a zoom invite for, for those people. And basically we've expanded it. It used to be three and then we've expanded it to five, maybe six, And you just join if you want to read the article, right? Most, most people like doing this. So most people come in every single week, but, you know, getting six, you know, people who teach in higher education to get the same day off is super tough, right? So, you know, some mm -hmm. people are really busy. They'll skip one. They'll come back on the next one. So we just need about three people minimum to do it. So I expanded it to six so people can kind of fall off and fall in. Um, and then we just get on. And I, I always say that the first question is to the person who uh, picked the article. And I say, why did you pick the article? And the next question is, what's your overall uh, opinions from all other people? And, you know, you take notes and I, I have some leading questions if nobody else has leading questions just as a backup. Sometimes I get to my points. Sometimes I don't. We go about 30 to 50 minutes, depending on, um, on the article. And yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's, I think it caught some people off guard in the beginning when I posted, Oh, I'm doing this article. And people are like, wait, do you want me to be on the podcast or do you need me to do anything? I'm like, Oh no, we're just going to talk about your article publicly, which is, I guess weird, but people have been really, really good about it. It does, um, you know, give their article another kind of bump up. People might read it more, cite it more. So, yeah, I I, I like the idea, and I I think in general podcasting it's it's quite uniform the formats now. That usually it's it's one host who's either talking alone or two hosts who are talking discussing or it's a host and a guest and and they're talking and and it's it's quite quite formal in a way and i i think when when somebody for example have studied one subject for 30 40 years even the discussions they are having in a in a coffee table in the in the university cafeteria are probably interesting for mm -hmm. some people yeah. so i i think researchers should be just recording more things like when they have for example research groups it's probably interesting information for quite many people who are in the same same niche or doing same kind of things 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the, that's the thing is getting, getting a couple people in the room to, and just throwing out a topic can be, if, if done well, can be some of the best podcasts, you know, of, like you said, a person that's been in that field for 20 years, or maybe has had the life experience in five years of that, of a person who's been in the field for 25 years, um, you know, getting them to have a conversation like I, I would listen in. Yeah, I, I agree. And and how do you see now that with the pandemic, we have moved to distant teaching and and you have used podcast already in your teaching. How, how do you see the modern teaching? For example, is it better to do lectures or is it better to do them podcasts? It's easier to consume and and how how do you see where is the teaching going with these new new formats and new technologies? So I think I think podcasts are one avenue. I don't think they're the only avenue. I don't think every student loves podcasts. Um, it's very hard to take notes on podcasts because we we talk about how convenient it is. And so a lot of a lot of students feel like it's super easy to do, but then are they really taking all that information in? Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's very hard for them to pay attention during that. So I think that it just and so how I how I have my classes set up is a lot of times they have some sort of blog, some sort of podcast, and some sort of online lecture, and then we either meet in person or we have some sort of discussion board. But in a classroom environment, right? If I'm physically in a classroom in front of my students, I'll have them I'll say you have to listen to the podcast before you walk into class. And then that leads into discussion. And then that leads into a more robust discussion about what that what that podcast highlighted. So I think podcasting to me, and I'm not sure if this is to everybody, but it's a vehicle to get into a better discussion, a more rich discussion. It, it's like underlying. And then we talk about how that, you know, relates to those students' lived experiences of what they feel like their goals are in that class or their opinions are in that in that subject. And so I think that I don't think podcasting is the only way. And, you know, that's we we run a doctoral seminar through the podcast through University of Northern Colorado um, in Greensboro. And Dr. De- uh, ben Dyson had this idea of like, hey, what do you think? I'm doing this pedagogy podcast and or pedagogy seminar. And I'm going to record every single one. We're going to have 14 guest lectures over the semester, and I'm going to record them. Can we upload them on your podcast? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I think they're they're popular, you know, episodes to listen to. But that person who's listening can't interact, right? They can't interact and talk to specific. Uh, people and ask clarifying questions. So it's still mm-hmm. not as interactive as a class is. And I think that there mm-hmm. are different organizations that do this really well. Um, and that's probably why they charge for them, you know, and have live Q&A where you can actually just like sit on a call and do a live Q&A after you get done talking or somebody posts a question in 
in the chat to to kind of guide that direction forward and maybe maybe podcasts will get there that you can do live recording and people can go online and they know when you're recording or you record at the same time every day you do it live and the chat is open for people to to chime in i mean it would be a more robust educational experience but um i don't know i i love it i think it's it's uh it's allowed me to read well beyond what i traditionally would have read um Um, every every person that comes on is really interesting so i i i have a great time doing it so yeah yeah i i agree and maybe maybe some of the listeners are now they are working as educators or researchers and they might be thinking of of podcasting what what would you like to say to them and what kind of tips or encouragement you'd like to give for them um i think so the things that i was told in the very beginning which i i think are really great is you got to stay consistent Right, you got to stay consistent in publishing at a at a regular rate. So it's really easy to put out and gather five episodes and put them out all at once because you're so excited because you just like created this thing. But to hold them out, if you're going to do a podcast once a month, do a podcast once a month. If you're going to do it once a week, do it once a week. And for a long time, like it just will stay stale. Right, it, it's not going to just like rocket at least for me, it's not going to rocket through the roof in your you know first three episodes, but it's building an audience through that. And look, like if you like doing it, then you just keep doing it. There's no reason for you to stop, even though your listenership isn't, isn't, you know, in the thousands or hundreds of thousands, but it's something that you enjoy doing. And that's why it was easy for me to continue doing this, even though our listenership wasn't like skyrocketing was because I knew that it would help my students because I was going through and we were able to, you know, I was able to have essentially guest lectures without having them scheduled and to, you know, the other goal for us is to really have this like living library that will stay for as long as this podcast app. So as long as Spotify is around, like, we're able to, people are able to talk to people or listen to people talk about their work. And so I think it's just going out. I use Anchor, um, which I found, and it's not a, a, a paid plug for Anchor, uh, but I found it really easy. You know, I record, I drop my information into Anchor, it uploads it into 11 different uh, podcast sites. I schedule my podcasts in advance. Like I record and I set my launch dates. So right now my last recording that I did yesterday will come out in six weeks. So I try to get ahead of it. I know, you know, we don't talk about uh, everyday things. Like I don't talk about like, oh, yesterday it was this and this or this date. Um, so they are kind of timeless in a way, so they can be listened to two years from now. So it doesn't matter if I launch it tomorrow or if I launch it in six weeks. And I just try to kind of stay ahead of it and continuously, you know, put out an episode 
every Tuesday at 7 a.m. It drops like clockwork. Um, and I think that that helps um, listeners kind of get into the rhythm of listening. Mm, yeah, I, I think good points, consistency. And then if you if you enjoy doing it, it's easy to keep keep on going and, and building a puffer first that you can actually you can skip a couple of weeks without recordings and still you keep getting the episodes out. Mm-hmm. And and I think I would say the same that it's of course there's a learning curve in the beginning how to how to recur, record proper proper quality audio and so on. But publishing with this these services that you can use which usually cost like just ten ten dollars a month it's surprisingly easy and you just upload it there and it goes everywhere apple podcast spotify whatever so it's i think it's easier than people usually think yeah yeah and it i mean setting up my recording because i used to record through GarageBand. i had an external mic you know learning to run that and like basically to get started with free garage band and an external mic, it took me a very long time, you know, to figure out the audio settings and all of this. And I was having issues recording, um, you know, through zoom or Skype and have to figure out the microphones and stuff. So I actually wrote down all these directions on how to do it. Um, but I think that there are programs now that are just like a click and play. And that's anchor is one that it's just like, just click. You you can even do it on the app. Just hold down the record button and and go. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's it's way easier than people think if you have a little bit of understanding. Um, and if you enjoy doing it, then you don't really care how many people are listening. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree. I've been now changing places for for several reasons. So I'm always like the getting the reverb and echo away mm-hmm. so I've, i'm now have like a lot of pillows in front of me and behind me i have blankets and so on so that's maybe one thing just to just to get the echo away and then even a, even not so expensive microphone will give decent sound quality so i think that's that's the one thing that you need to pay pay attention to get the quality sound um I think we could start finishing, but uh, maybe last one. How how do you see the role of podcasting in science communications now and and in the future? Well, I would be interested to find out more about this. I know a colleague of mine, uh, Scott McNamara, runs uh, an adapted physical education podcast, um, and he's talked, uh, he's done research on this. And I think it's, it's interesting research. Um, it's about, you know, adapted physical educators attitude about educational podcasts. And, and I think that there, it has such a huge opportunity. Like it has so much like, um, possibility. I don't know how it's going. Like, I don't know how to do a research project uh, one of my one of my guests talked about was you know having a student read a research paper and then having them listen or other group having them listen to a podcast and seeing which one actually understood more or engaged more with it and I don't know how to put that into action but that's what I would be interested in 
is to see if does what you and I do, like, is it actually something that they are learning from? Or is it really nice background sound when you're, you know, are they going to get one thing out of a 40 minute podcast? And maybe that's good. But do they actually for like us when we do article um, overviews? Do they get the main ideas out of that article? I think that would be the interesting to see. And if we can show that there is actually like, and there, there are other, um, I think in like um, social services or public health, there are some um, research out on podcasts that have shown a positive effect on there. But I think a lot of those are attitudes. Do students like it? Yeah, students enjoy podcasts or they're good podcasts and they're good additions, but did they learn? Was it educational for them? Did it actually have the meaning that we wanted it to? And I think that's the next step. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And when you start podcasting, you see the numbers, how many people listen to episode, but usually in the beginning you get absolutely no feedback. You don't know who listened. You see where what countries people listened, but basically you get really little feedback and and it's kind of a little bit difficult like you you don't know who's listening did they like did they only listen like the first minute and they they quit so it's in the beginning it's it's a little bit challenging then later on you start to get feedback and hear hear a little bit at least from people how how it is yeah absolutely and i think that you're right on it's the beginning parts is okay, so this many people listen to it from these places, but I have no idea who those people are. Is it just some person like, I don't know, in a different country trying to learn English and they stumbled on your podcast and they're listening to it? Or, you know, I I think it took me two years until other scholars really have said, hey, this is a really good service to the community. Like, thanks for doing that. And I use it in my classes. I'm like, please tell me if you use this in your classes, because that that's really like helpful for me. And, but I don't know. I, I think, I think it's an exciting space to be in. And for me, it's, it's great because I get to have so many great people on, on the podcast that are really intelligent talk about really interesting content and are willing to give me an hour of their day to just, chat with me i mean who who am i i'm just like some random guy who lives in virginia that does research in this area and wants to talk research so yeah i i fully agree with you it's it's always a pleasure you get to discuss for a for an hour with really clever clever people who have a long experience so i i would recommend podcast doing podcast even even for that so how do people find find your podcast and which episodes you would recommend people to listen listen first? Um, if you go on twi- uh, Twitter and you look at at the HPE podcast, there's a link there. Um, so health and physical education. So at the HPE podcast, uh, we also have a website, um, www.thehpewebsite.com and it links there as well um and you can go into the to the website version if you don't have a podcast app or you want to assign students podcasts um 
you know, I think that there are a bunch of different ones. I don't know if I can pick the the best ones there. I think it's uh, we have a couple of different styles of podcasts. One is a theory breakdown, which are pretty quick. Um, they're great to uh, kind of get an overview on you know intersectionality or um, you know theory of planned behavior or socioecological theory or things like that that you you know may know a little bit, but you need a refresher. You can just listen to a couple of those. Um, the article clubs are enjoyable to me. It's more conversational. Um, we also put up, um, and these may not be for everybody, but we also put up audio from the uh, PEAT collaborative, which is the teacher education collaborative that has about anywhere between 75 to 150 college professors on a call talking about key issues in teacher education. So we put up the audio for that. And then we also put up the audio for ICEP monthly uh, connection with colleagues conversations. So um, I'd say the the top listen to episodes are um, Laura Alfrey talking about the Australian curriculum, um, Ash Casey in our second episode about models-based practice, um, the ICEP conversation somewhere in the 90s about um, Joe Wicks. Uh, which is a really interesting phenomenon in in the UK that basically this personal trainer uh, became the face of physical education teaching in in the UK. Um, so I'd say those are three good ones to kind of understand the different formats. But um, you know, those are just the top episodes. And again, like you said, I have no idea why those are the top episodes. I know those people are active on social media, but I, I don't know, maybe it's because it's episode two that Ash Casey came on and people go through systematically when they look at it. So. Yeah. So, so especially if you're working on PE, go, go and check the, the podcast and please leave some comments, whether it's negative feedback, positive, whatever, how, how you use the podcast, what did you like? What would you wish to have there? It's it would help us a lot as the podcasters if we get some some more feedback. It can be anything, but it helps us because now we really don't know how people people like it and how they how they use it. So so check out the podcast of Risto and I would like to thank you for taking the t- time for this podcast. It was it was really really nice recording and i think there's a lot of valuable information for our listeners yeah absolutely and and i wouldn't be able to do this this podcast stuff without the people who support me i have an undergraduate assistant and um, a phd student who kind of helped me out in you know getting questions together and setting that stuff up i have a couple colleagues who you know help recruit and do uh do some questions as well so um, I thank you so much for having me on and um, good luck on your podcast as well. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, 
Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.